and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I'm bang up to date with this intro, which isn't usually the case. I usually record them a bit in advance because I'm just that organised. <laughs> but this time I am recording this on Monday the 20th and it is coming up to 7 o'clock. And I've just been so busy that I haven't managed to uh, to keep up. But anyway... Nice for you to to know that if you're listening to this on Tuesday morning, that uh, I was literally recording this like 12 hours ago. <laughs> so there we go. I would like to start by saying before this episode, thank you and welcome to all the new listeners we've got. Um, listen numbers have increased quite significantly over the past couple of months. So hello to everybody who's new and delving into the sort of back catalogue. If you are listening to this and you haven't already, please could you leave a review for the podcast on whichever service you listen to it. You don't have to write anything necessarily. Um, just push the little five-star button at the bottom. <laughs> um, you can see I'm winking. Um, you can't see because it's a podcast. Um, but if you fancied writing a review, that'd be great. just sort of helps with, um, I don't really know, what CEO, whatever that, that is. Sort of just letting people know that this podcast exists, basically. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so thank you. Um, and also, if you are new to this and you don't know much about me, not that it's about me at all, but you can go to the website, my website, which is allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, I've got loads of stuff about Beatles and all sorts of things up there. Um, you can find out about my studio and the remote sessions that I do. Right, I'll stop waffling for you. Uh, this week I am chatting... I'm really excited to be chatting um, to a legendary drummer. Uh, we have a bit of a drum-heavy-ish couple of episodes coming up, I'm afraid. Um, but it's Clem Catini, who is kind of of the same ilk as Bobby Graham, where we did the episode um, on Bobby Graham. Um, Bobby and Clem were playing on records at the same time. Um, and whilst Bobby was a bit of a, uh, a jazz player, Clem was very much a pop player, and uh, honestly, he's one of the most humble guys I've ever spoken to. And I really enjoyed picking his brains. I've watched it. I've been aware of Clem's career for a long, long time. And I've read a lot of inter interviews with him and a lot about him. So I was really pleased to get the chance to speak to him myself and ask him some of the non sort of drum questions that he always gets asked. You know, I want to know a bit more of the nitty gritty about his day to day working life as a as a sort of session player in the 60s on Denmark Street in London. Uh, so, yeah, this was a really exciting interview for me and I hope that you guys enjoy it. So we'll get straight into it. Here we go. Clem Catini. I mean, I wonder if you could start off by sort of talking about where you grew up. And um, what that was like, sort of through the through the fifties, I would I would guess, and uh, and sort of yeah. what and um you know what the the feel was, and how music sort of you know what was music a feature in in your life growing up at all, and and uh, what was life like for you? Well, I mean, I was I was evacuated when I was three years old, obviously during the war, and I couldn't speak a word of English. Mm -hmm. My parents, my dad was Italian, and they spoke to me in Italian. Uh, and I lived I lived in Stoke Newington. Uh, okay. we, oh, I was born in Stonington, I should say, and lived in Harringay. But I had no, I mean, my mother, fun enough, was a, was a keen, uh, keen Latin American uh, music listener. Uh, Edmundo Ross used to be on the radio because we oh, didn't have television then. I'm going, <laughs> before your time, no, we didn't have television. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she used to listen to Edmundo Ross and this rumba band, as it was called, you know. And maybe that's got into my system. I don't know because it was on every, well, whenever it was on, it was on. 
but I had no sort of inclinations towards music. It was only when I went to see some mates of mine that play guitar, we went to see uh, uh, Blackboard Jungle, and of course, in Blackboard Jungle was the the uh, you know uh, was uh, the, the rock and roll number. You know uh, uh, what the kind it was called now. Um, um, Bill Haley's one. Oh, Rock Around the Clock. Rock Around the Clock, yeah, sorry, yeah. And then we came out of the cinema and, he said, and they said, that's former rock and roll group. So I said, okay, what do I play? <laughs> and they said, well, you... And I said, well, they said, well, you play drums. So I did. Oh, maybe. So I started... <laughs> yeah, that was it. I started on washboard, to be honest, at first, playing a washboard, which, which is all the rage in the, uh, like the 50s. Yeah, the skiffle craze. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And uh, so did you... What, what was the sort of from that point when did you sort of get your first kit and how did that how did you sort of progress from ros- washboard into to being a sort of proper drummer in inverted commas <laughs> yeah i like inverted commas yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i am um, uh, well I, I bought my first kit i bought odds and sods i mean the bass drum i could just about look over the top of it it was so big <laughs> and um and it was all thing i had a symbol that when you hit it, it used to used to bend, so I used to have to straighten it out before I could use it again. Nice. And things like that. It cost me 20 quid, I think it was, in those days. But then I suddenly thought I started, uh, we formed this group, and then obviously I had to progress from washboard onto drums. And I started to thought, oh, I like this. And so I sort of took, then took a bit of uh, interest in it and started to try learning to play drums. I never had any lessons, to be honest with you. I just bought... I bought the Buddy Rich drum tutor, mm-hmm. which a friend of mine who was a drummer, for enough, he was uh, he was with Eddie Calvert's drummer at that time, probably right. before your time. And uh, he said to me, buy that Buddy Rich drum tutor, which I did, and I used to practice to that. You know, when between working in my dad's calf and having a break, I used to run upstairs into my bedroom and, and have a quick practice on a practice bed. So that was it, really. So where were you? Was this... Um, this friend of yours was he sort of the where you were seeing drums being played? You know, like how did you, you know, you you obviously weren't seeing it on the TV. So where were you? No, no. Oh, well, yeah, fun of the two guys that were guitar players. It sort of got me onto it. Uh, they had a little uh, jazz group, like a little five piece, and I used to go and watch them on a sort of on, on my da- when I had a day off from me, my cafe, my dad's cafe. Let's yeah. go and watch them playing. You know, so that's really started, and the drummer. A guy called Bruno Demarini. Uh, he, he said, "Yeah, I'll come and have a go." So, uh, so I had a quick play, which was absolutely nowhere, you know. <laughs> but I thought, oh, I like this, and that really sort of, if you like, inspired me to carry on. And also, uh, my wife was now who was my my my, my girl, which was my girlfriend then. Uh, I was pl- we were going down this club, and this guy was playing there, and he says, "Come up and have a play," you know. Uh, on the drums and I went all right so I said to her so I'm going to go and play the drums she, she just laughed <laughs> and I said you can laugh I said you can laugh I'm going to be famous one day <laughs> uh, she sounds as supportive <laughs> as my <laughs> wife <laughs> Love, famous last words you know <laughs> and what was do you remember what was the name of that group it was just a bit a little band that worked down a club that's all there Oh, I, sorry, the, I mean your yeah. your skiffle group. Oh, the, 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 the group was called Terry Kennedy's Rock and Rollers. Oh, it was that band. Okay, fantastic. What, yeah, kind, of, yes. what kind of gigs were you doing? Well, with the first well, was I actually then I started working down the Two Eyes. Okay, you know the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, and there's myself and Brian Bennett, 
were the two sort of house drummers. And if Brian couldn't do it, I did it. If I couldn't do it, Brian did it. And then we progressed. Uh, an agent came down and saw the band and said, like, do you want to go out on tour with Max Wall? Because Max Wall was doing a Bill Haley skit and he wanted a rock and roll band behind him. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. We went out for three months, uh, about three months, yeah. And then we came back then. I called Terry Dean. I don't know if you, you're probably you're too young to remember I that. I know the name, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was looking for a band and his manager said, would you, like, would you like to go out as his Dean Aces? So then we went out as Terry Dean's Dean Aces. And then so that's really my career started there, full on. Uh, that must have been, uh, you know, fifty-eight. You... Oh, nineteen fifty-eight. Okay, so when you got yeah. your, when you got that first tour, I mean, you must have been over the moon, and it must quite an exciting thing to have happened. Oh, well, it was fantastic. I mean, especially me because I'd been playing about six months, so <laughs> I was getting away. I was getting, I was getting away with murder. But in fact, it was just rock and roll. It was uncharted. Um, uncharted. Um, you know what I mean? So, sort of like a, a, a very strong offbeat and that, and it seemed to work. But oh yeah, it was exciting. What was your? I know that um, you, like a lot of um, sort of uh, session players from you know the the sort of late fifties and sixties were quite into jazz and then did rock and roll as a way to earn a living. Whereas it sounds like you were quite into the rock and roll specifically and not necessarily coming from a jazz um, sort of tradition. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I was I couldn't have, couldn't have played jazz if I saved my life. You know what? <laughs> I mean, what was jazz? I don't know. I just, you know, but no, I mean, because I mean, the music scene was changing in the, the late 50s from the big band era to the skiffle groups and whatever, you know, and then and then sort of the rock and roll thing. And I was listening to rock and roll records, obviously, yeah. you know, Presley and people like that, you know. So that's really sort of inspired me. And I'll be honest with you, I went to a, uh, uh, when I really turned me off, I went to a gig. I was doing a gig with the Tornadoes in, in, uh, in, Holland, and we were invited to a jazz gig, and the drummer, I can't remember who it was, he sat there for 20 minutes and just played the first and third beat of each bar for, for 20 minutes, and I, I got up, walked out, and I said, that's it. The guy was taking the mickey, and I said, that's it. I'm not going to another jazz concert. <laughs> but no, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I, I wasn't, a, you know, I was a rock and roller, let's face it, yeah. stop, you um, know. So then, which I loved. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a. I can, I can, you know, I, I come from a Beatles tradition, and I can sort of see, you know, I can pick, see all the the pictures of those guys back in, uh, sort of, you know, the late fifties and very early sixties, all with the Teddy Boy stuff and in the skiffle groups and things like that. And it absolutely, like, yeah. yeah, it sounds like an exciting time. It, it was. Oh, I think it was probably the best time for music in uh, you know we had, which thank God I was a part of, you know. But I mean, just just to, to I'll get one one thing straight. Uh, remember, but music never started with the Beatles. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so what? Uh, how long were you on tour for? So uh, was it about eight or nine years you toured for? Oh yeah, no, because I left. I mean, when Terry Dean, I mean, he, the the history is a bit uh, elongated, but he was trying, uh, ensconced into the army, which didn't work. And then his his work fell off and all that. And then I joined uh, I joined the Larry Pons rock and roll shows where back in Billy Fury, Donny Gentle, Dicky Pride, uh, Vince Egan, all that lot. You know, it was like they used to throw them on one after the other, and we had to play for them. 
but yeah, then when I package, I, I package performances that's right yeah which was i mean it was very big in those days mm-hmm. and then i i had enough because i was getting i was living in and sleeping in coaches and not eating and things like that and i decided to leave and then i got the job with johnny kidd the pirates which uh, was really the start of my sort of i suppose in a way the session career because it was the first record i ever played on it was got to number one <laughs> shaking all over shaking all over yeah, yeah. What was the main difference in kind of your day to day from coming off tour and then joining Johnny Kidd and the Pirates? Oh, I love working with John. I mean, we were doing three or four dates, five dates a week, you know, and uh, and and it was a John was great. He was he was he was very very popular with the guys, you know. I mean, I remember that we did a gig in High Wycombe, and it, the night before, shaking all over, got to number one. And we got to this, this hall in Wickham and the place was absolutely heaving. And they were selling tickets outside like, on Black Market to get in. It was un- I know it's unbelievable. And, and, and the agent, he was so pleased, he decided to give us a fiver extra. Of, you know, he was so pleased. Yeah, yeah. Which we got a pound each and John took two, you know, which is, <laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, um, so that was the first kind of, um, I guess a official hit you played on, but what was your? Did you have any recording experience before then at all, or was that literally? No, 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 no. That was it. That was my first ever sort of uh, experience of being in a studio, which happened to be number two studio at EMI or Abbey Road, whatever you want to call it. Oh wow, that was going to be my next question. Where was it? Yes, um, yes. So what year was that? Sixty-one was it? No, this was nine seven uh, Oh right, a bit earlier. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, was, uh, they were. What do you remember much from that session? Because that's kind of prime white coats and all that days in the. Uh, oh God, yeah, I yeah. Uh, the thing is that originally was going to be the B side. Okay. And it, and Peter Sullivan, who's the producer, he said no, 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 that's going to be the A side, and he got it turned over, so they released it as the A side. The funny part when you talk about white coats, Peter Sullivan asked the engineer, sound engineer, and said, "Look, I want full echo." I want full chamber echo, and I want full full uh, reverb echo. You know, which is like on the machine. Mm-hmm. And the guy got a got a book out and said, "Look, no, no." He says, "Look, the BBC book of recording it was." And says, "Oh, no, 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 you can't do that." <laughs> you know, it says in the book, <laughs> "You can't, do, <laughs> you can't have both." So you can imagine that the expletives was just stick to a book where you like, but just do what I tell you. Amazing. So, <laughs> it, could, it was the white coat and the the, the pens in the in the pocket, you know. Yeah. Do what was um? <laughs> do you remember? I mean, were you were you interested at all in in sort of any of the technical stuff around, or was it just that was it sort of overwhelming? You know, what were the, sort of the general feelings, and what did you take in from that day, if you can remember? No, not really. I didn't. I, I mean, all I knew is that I had a, a microphone on the bass drum and an overhead mic, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Just two mics, not like you know, my pre, sort of later career as a session man. You had the microphone sticking out of everywhere, you know. Yeah. But that was how we recorded, you know. But no, I wasn't really technically in that respect. No. And were you? Uh, this is a this is a, just a bit of a nerdy question for me. But were you? Do you remember the this? I mean, that room, at Studio Two, is a pretty pretty sort of well known room. Most people can picture that. Absolutely, yeah. Where, do you remember whereabouts in the room you were placed or? Um, yeah, I was in the centre of the room. Okay. I was in the centre of the room and surrounded by uh, screens. 
Yeah. And uh, I say one mic over the top and one mic on the bass drum. And that was it. Fantastic. Yeah. You must have, I mean, I mean, sorry, go on. No, no, go Sorry. I was going to say, you must have been pinching yourself, you know, first recording experience. I know that Abbey Road or EMI didn't have the, you know, won't have had uh, any of the sort of uh, sort of Beatles connotations as it does now. But oh no, no, of course, it's still not, an no. impressive space to be in, and then to get right. a number one hit off that first session is unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, I was more interested that I was getting paid five pound fifteen shillings. You know, that was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, God, this is easy. This come in the studio, do a couple of numbers, and get five pound fifteen shillings. I thought it was tremendous. You know, <laughs> so that was. That really was more more in my thoughts than anything, I suppose. Did you have any inkling that that might be what you were going to continue doing? What What was your thoughts at that time about sort of careers? Not really, because I mean, like, I left when I left John, which I left John, which I didn't want to, but we got an offer from this guy called Colin Hicks in Italy, who was a massive star mm-hmm. in Italy. He wanted us as pirates as his band. And I didn't want to go, and it was that, you know, thing. If we don't all go, none of us can go a bit. And I yeah. put the pressure on me a little bit. So we went, which was a big thing. And it was that through that that I came back to England after, like, three months, and I, that's when I joined Joe and Meek. But I, I've never, I never ever thought, I've got to be honest, I never, you know, everything job I did that used to think it was my last one, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, what was going to happen next? Especially when I left the Tornadoes, anyway. <laughs> I, I'm curious. So before we we sort of get to sort of more the more recording things and and talk about Joe Meek and things like that, uh, there's a quote that I read in an interview that you gave with Mike Dolber about uh, you've you've. I'm just going to read it back to you. Uh, yeah, says, okay. Um, I wasn't a particularly proficient technical drummer. In fact, I've always considered myself a bit of a musical navvy. What? 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 what well, do you think that... it was about your playing that that works so well in in that? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, you know, it's, it's really not for me to say. I don't know. You know, I don't know what people thought, you know. When I say I was a musical navvy, I mean, we were, because he was going in the studio from, say, 10 o'clock in the morning till 1 o'clock during the session, the next one 2 o'clock till 5 o'clock, and then the next one 7 till 10, then going home, going to bed, and getting up the next day and doing the same thing. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I mean, so, like a navvy, I mean, instead of building houses or, or whatever and building roads, I was I was making records. You know, that's why... I called myself a musical navvy. <laughs> so it just felt like a, it, it did feel like a job for you. Oh, it was, yes. It was a good job. I mean, it was getting more reasonably paid, you know. I mean, now when I look back, we wasn't reasonably paid, but at that <laughs> time it was, you know. I mean, I, 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 I'll say what I think, and then I'll, let's I'll sort of see on, what, what, you, what you think. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the drummers that, that appeal, you know, as a drummer myself, a lot of what appeals to me about your playing and and sort of other session players from that era is the because it's so simple, but it works for the song perfectly. It it works. Yes. Everything works really well. And whether you you might say that's because you weren't, um, you know, you didn't have lessons or you you haven't been playing that long. No, maybe, you're right. Maybe it was a perfect storm of um, you know, simple yes. things. What that music required. That was exactly it. That was exactly right. I didn't. I wasn't a I wasn't a Olympic drummer, you know. I, I couldn't. I, I, I didn't have the techniques of like most of the guys. Mr. Wallace never never had that. the techniques of these guys. What I call Olympic drummers, yeah. and I played the way I played because that's all I could play. I, yeah. I remember doing a, a big band session which wasn't up down my street at all, you know. And the the, the, the blast player came out to me, one of the trumpet players, said, 
I love the way you reined back and just played what was necessary. <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't that, is I couldn't play anything else. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't deliberately doing it. That's the way I played. And yeah. I think possibly that, for one of the better words, is probably a bit of the reason for my success, I suppose. You know, I'm, you know I wasn't a technical drummer. There's a lot of emphasis drums wise these you know people talk about it a lot now on being consistent and you know having a consistent backbeat and all that kind of stuff were, were you i mean you have those attributes but were you even aware of them were you thinking about being being consistent or you just sort of holding almost holding the fort and you know letting the music do its thing yeah no i mean no i didn't i mean evidently i mean believe it, i had good time evidently that's what i was told yeah my time was good and also you know uh, and you know my philosophy was you've got to play the song that's the more important thing you know it's no good going around the, the drum kit 300 miles an hour in the middle of a ballad you know what i mean no, of so the not, thing yeah. is yeah and yeah being a drummer you know that's what i'm saying and the thing is you've got to listen to what other people are, are playing and and that's the whole idea you know is that's what playing music is is about for me anyway yeah. But I mean, I, I say technique wise, I never had a, That's probably my technique. I didn't have any. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about going from. Um, so you talked about the. Uh, I, 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 the name's gone blank on me now, but you, you moved on from Johnny Kidd no. and, and took on another another group. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Colin Hicks. Colin Hicks, that's the word. And then you it moved. It was on... Tommy Steele's brother. Okay. It was Tommy Steele's brother. Um, so following that was when you started working with Joe Meek more regularly. Yeah, we came, um, yeah, came back to England. That's right, yeah. And so Alan Caddy, the guitar player, okay. uh, he looked, saw it, saw an advert in the paper, the guitar player wanted for a session band, which where the because the, the Outlaws were Joe's session group yes. and they were going on tour. So Joe was going like, to get another group together. And uh, Alan phoned me up and said, you fancy coming with me? You know, just because give me a bit of moral support, and uh, it was on a Saturday. And the fact that Arsenal were playing away, I think okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went with him to uh, to the thing, and he said to Joe, "Do you mind if my mate plays drums or I play a couple of numbers?" Joe said, "Yes." Yeah. So at the end of it, Joe said, "I like your playing, Alan. Very nice playing. You've got the job. What about your mate? Does he want a job?" And that was me. So. That was how it all started. So if Spurs had been playing at home, you, you nothing might have <laughs> Yeah, they were. Spurs were playing at home, thank God. That's fine. <laughs> no, um, no, I'm saying home. If Arsenal had been playing at home, I wouldn't have gone. Oh, Arsenal, sorry. I thought I you said have. Spurs. <laughs> no, I've no, offended you massively now. You. No, no, sorry. That, oh, that's it. I'm going to turn off now. <laughs> oh, dear. What, um, <laughs> no, no. So... I, I'm, that's that seems crazy having to almost audition for a, a recording session band. Um, yeah, yeah. What do you remember? What song you played, and where where was the audition? Uh, it was it was his studio in Holloway Road. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I met Alan there because he lived over East London, uh, West London, and I lived over North London. We met the studio. I mean, which studio? <laughs> what, what have we come to? It was a bedroom, you know, sort of. Like, <laughs> with a drum kit set in the corner in the fireplace you know so but uh, no it, 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 it was I can't know I think it was probably a Johnny Kidd number that we because not when we worked together with Johnny Kidd you know yeah yeah and obviously I was impressed with Alan and I think he was desperate to find a drummer and I was there so that was it 
so what um what was your first session from there what what was kind of oh, next after that audition yeah we, we did johnny not johnny remember we did wildwind for johnny john layton and we did things from a load of stuff for don charles mm-hmm. and we played track after track after track you know after we don't even know what we played on to be honest you know <laughs> it was it was it was, it was incredible joe i mean in fact that they're bringing out uh some cherry record cherry red records bringing out some um, unheard tapes of stuff recorded at joe meeks oh the t-chest tapes yeah t-chest that's it the famous ones yeah and that's i mean there's stuff in there that i mean probably i've never even heard since we recorded it you know wow what was i'm i'm really I'm really interested in sort of the the sort of mundane day to day bit of it all. I mean, no, when, when you sort of turned up to a session, what what was what happened? I mean, did you have any idea what you were doing that day? Did someone play not a song a you on the guitar, or how did it all work? No, no. With Joey, it would go along really. I mean, the, the thing Telstar when we got Telstar, he he sang over this track which had nothing to do with the song whatsoever, <laughs> which we had to decide. But it's quite a famous. Uh, Famous piece of tape now that people seem to be going around. That Joe singing over this this track was the chords were nothing to do with the song, that, mm-hmm. you know, which we had to decipher. But uh, it, it, we used to just go in and Joe would say, "Like do this or this is what," and then all the guy'd come in with a song, uh, like a songwriter, or and play something. We we'd follow it. We never well, no music involved because I couldn't read a note anyway, so yeah. Didn't, but I mean, it was different. Obviously, it was a different story when I started doing sessions as a professional. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So you, you still this this almost felt um, kind of amateur is the wrong word, but almost not not sort of in proper studios, if you like. It was, I think it was done on like the fifth day did in Nashville. You know, all got together, a bunch of guys together, and played together, and something came out of it. Yeah, that's mainly. I think it was the same thing with Joe up Joe's studio, you know, because you know, I used to get there at 10 o'clock, we used to sit there and go and have dinner and come back and do some morning, go home at six o'clock, or things like that. You know, sort of never got paid, mind, but that was yes. another story. <laughs> <laughs> what well, I, I know, you know, I don't, a lot of people know a lot about Joe Meek, and I'm not looking for, for sort of scandal, but you, what was he like generally to work with, sort of musically specifically? Oh, I mean, well, I've always said this. Joe was sound wise was an absolute genius. Yeah, I mean, even to this day, when I listen to Telstar, I don't often, but when I do, the, when I think back of the equipment that he got that off of, was you know, when it was so, and it was two little tape recorders. You know, it wasn't even sort of four track or sixteen track. It was just two 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 track tape recorders. Yeah, you know, bouncing from one to the other. You know, and. Uh, that's weird, but and musically, he was a bit of a moron. He hadn't got a clue. Didn't know, to be honest, didn't know Dennis being a crotchet and that shit, <laughs> as they say in goes. So, but he was, he kind of knew what he wanted sound wise. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did he, did he dictate? I mean, not, not sort of dictate in a, um, in a strict sense of the word, but did he sort of let you know what he wanted drum wise, or did you have a bit of free reign? <laughs> a bit of uh, He'd suggest things, or he'd say to me, "What do you suggest?" I mean, the rhythm on uh, like uh, Telstar was my idea because it was a moving thing, mm-hmm. and it, basically it was like a, a, a really it was a disco rhythm when you think look back at it. Yeah, yeah. And it was, 
you know, and, and the and the key change was my idea, like I'm a carry on moving thing. But then, I mean, the other ideas was I'm sound wise, we just left it to him. I mean, if you'd heard the original thing when we finished the tape, it was nothing like Telstar was finished. It was incredible. Yeah. That's what that's where Joe was a genius, you know. Well, um, so what uh, you were you were essentially turning up for sessions, not and then kind of you didn't know whether it was going to be a hit, and presumably a lot of it was, you know, a lot of it got lost in those. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Some of it just came out, and you sort of didn't really know what you what you were playing on. It was no, just you sort of no, that's exactly. I mean, that's a, it was just yeah, we just went in there, and he he'd, he had. Like, I mean, I remember that when when. He's got this tape of the Beatles that he was sent by, and he said, absolute rubbish, and threw it in the bin, <laughs> you know, which, to be honest, he did quite a few times because with Tommy, with uh, oh, Tommy Scott, who was Tom Jones, yeah. he came for an audition, and Joe said, oh, he'll never make it. He threw his tape into the bin, you know, and also the case of when uh, the guy, what, the, the Joe Meek of America, what was his name? Um Oh, Phil right. Spector. Yes. <laughs> Phil Spector phoned up and answered the phone and his advice says, could I speak to Mr. Meek? Would you tell him it's Joe? It was Phil Spector. Yeah, okay. So Joe's Phil Spector on the phone. He went absolutely ape. I started swearing at a bloke on the phone. He pinched all my ideas. How dare you? <laughs> and then slammed the phone down and broke the phone, you know. So there you go. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, who was who was playing with you at that time? What was the sort of session group that you were playing with? Uh, it was well, Alan Caddy was on guitar, mm -hmm. and uh, George Bellamy, who is I don't know if you know, is is a uh, Matt Bellamy's dad. Oh, is he? I didn't know. I didn't yes. realize that. So Matt, yeah. uh, Matt Bellamy from uh, Muse. Muse, yes. Yeah. yeah, and if you listen, I've been told I because I, I went to see them live, and they're very inf tornado influenced because Matt loved. I don't know why, but he loved the tornado stuff, you know. Yeah, I can and, hear um, that now you've said that. That's yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And also uh, on bass guitar, for want of a better word, was uh, sort of on bass guitar, which, <laughs> you know, the only guy I know who could play bass bass guitar with boxing gloves was Heinz. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger Laverne on, Roger, Roger Laverne on keyboards. We, okay. you know, so... It was a fight sometimes, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did you, I mean, if you want to, if I can call it this, how did you sort of graduate to to sort of proper sessions then? To I guess if, when I say proper sessions, I, I suppose I mean the, the next oh, no, full level time, be, yeah. yeah, sort of union sessions and things like that. Is, yeah. Am yeah. I right in thinking that that's what the next thing would be? Well, no, because we, we went with Billy Fury, didn't we? We had, we had the hit with Tornadoes, obviously. That all came between it all that. And then uh, we were working with Billy Fury and then the Tornadoes. I got the band started changing the members and I got fed up and I left. And then I went down to Denmark Street and used to sit about and a guy had come from one of the music publishers and said, I've got, I need a quick demo. Could you, I'll, get, I'll give you six quid, come and play on this demo. And I was doing lots of demos down Denmark Street and then I started getting calls People saying, "Did you play on such and such a demo? Yeah, could you come and do the master?" And that's really how the start of my session career, really. 
I love the idea of Denmark Street. I, I spoke with them um, with Ron Ryan yeah. quite a lot recently, and um, yeah. he's a you know I know he did a lot of backing vocals on a lot of sessions down Denmark Street. Yeah. It sounds like a really interesting um, sort of period of time and and place to be doing you know making these. <laughs> so there was demos and then recreating chart uh, stuff that was in the charts as a yeah. yeah that will and jingles and that kind of thing. Is that what you were playing on? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember we were just sitting in the coffee bar, the, the Geoconda coffee bar. We used to sit there. It was like a labour exchange, you know. And the guy come in and say, anybody free? Gonna, I need a demo. Yeah, okay. I mean, evidently, I don't know. I've not heard them, but I did demos with the Stones oh, wow. before Charlie Watts joined them, you know. But I mean, in in one of the studios, and because that's what it was mainly. It was like a, a demo street, you yeah. know. I mean, I had a case where I played on the demo and uh, there was a case where, funny enough, the, the MD had written all the, he'd written the, the parts out on the demo, from the demo, the drum part, yeah. give it to me. And I couldn't read, I couldn't read, you know. I looked at it, I said, what's this? He said, no, I said, I can't read that. I can't play it. I'm going to read it. So and he said, well, come and listen to the demo. I went and listened to the demo. It would be on the demo. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the sort of thing that happened, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's really, uh, through that, I mean, I must have got some sort of reputation, I suppose. And there we have it. Part one of my conversation with Clem Catini. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. I wondered whether or not to have a week off next week, uh, but Christmas falls this weekend um, and it will be the 28th next week. Uh, I know that people will listen to these podcasts when you're working and all sorts of stuff. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to release an episode anyway. So there will be one next week, despite it being Christmas. Um, but I hope that you guys all have an absolutely wonderful Christmas time. Do you see what I did there? Um, and yeah, have a great time. Don't drink too much or drink drink as much as you want don't listen to me i'm gonna drink as much as i want <laughs> um, have a really great time uh, and i will speak to you next week um yes there we go with the second part of my conversation with clem catini that just leaves me to say a huge thank you to uh, joe kane for the intro and outro uh, music for this podcast you'll also have noticed that i updated the uh, artwork recently and that is a chap called Adam Mallet who redesigned my website as well. So it was part of a whole sort of brand overhaul, if you like. I hate thinking of myself as a brand, um, but I'm told that you have to in these these day and age. So you'll notice that everything has had a bit of a revamp, and Adam Mallet is responsible for that. He's done some very cool stuff, including um, tour artwork for Carol King, um, Reeves and Mortimer and a whole host of other amazing stuff he's also uh, working with me on the artwork for the Ron Ryan project that I have talked endlessly about which is coming together and I will speak about that soon very 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 excited about that anyway I could talk to you forever because it's been quite a while since I've recorded one of these intros and outros so yes anyway um, have a fantastic Christmas I will speak to you next week and goodbye <laughs>